Good morning, good morning. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Yes. As we start this morning, uh, please turn again to John chapter 14. That will be our text for today. And again, in the Pew Bibles, that would be page uh, 1,282. John chapter 14. Last time uh, I was up here giving the morning message was almost a year ago. And uh, the title of the message at that time is, uh, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled. And hopefully some of you remember some of the points from that. And in this message today, we'll, that message at that time, we covered one of the great promises that Jesus made to his disciples. And I stated that there were two promises, two great promises that were actually in that 14th chapter of John. We'll be looking at the second one today. But first, uh, again, let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing on this time that we spent together in his word. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word this morning, may you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, open our eyes to understand and to cling to the words of comfort that Jesus gave. May these truths refresh our souls. May they make us useful channels for your work and make us more like Jesus. And by doing so, bring glory to yourself and you only. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before I get into the text this morning, and the, that surrounds the second promise that we're going, a quick review of uh, the context and the setting of, that led up to these two promises that Jesus gave. It starts off chapter 14 and right through chapter 16 of what is basically called the upper room discourse. Now Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's there in the upper room, which is prepared for the Passover observance. Jesus has already washed the disciples' feet at this time. Collectively, they have celebrated the Passover meal, which we commonly refer to here as the Last Supper at this time. And this time is when Jesus instituted the new covenant in his blood. Now, Jesus has been explaining to his disciples now for about three and a half years that during his ministry that he must suffer, die at the hands of sinful men, and rise again on the third day. And Jesus, right before this passage of John chapter 14 and chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, he announced that his soon departure, that he'd be leaving, and that they could not come with him. Now you've got to remember that the disciples at this time and many of the people of, of Israel were looking for the Messiah, and they were waiting for the kingdom to come. And when they saw Jesus being the Messiah, they thought he was going to set up his kingdom at this time. Now Jesus is announcing to them that, I'll be leaving you, and the kingdom has not been set up to their knowledge. They're waiting for this overthrow of basically the Roman government to reestablish the throne on th uh, David's throne. So knowing very shortly within hours, matter of fact, that he would be going to the cross, he would be crucified, he'd be leaving his disciples, he was deeply concerned for them and their needs and what they would soon encounter shortly. Knowing that they would be confused, discouraged, that they would feel forsaken and abandoned, they would be probably filled with anxiety and worry and troubled. Jesus gives these words of comfort to them. And on this night before his death, he instructs them, let not your heart be troubled. 
A quick review now of what we covered last time in verses 1 through 6. We looked at the person of Jesus. He instructs them to believe as you believe in God, as you believe and trust in God. He says also to, or in the same way, believe in me and put your trust in me. We looked at the place he spoke about. He was going to. He was going to his father's house to prepare a place for those who believe. Verse 2 of 14. We looked into the promise of his return. Jesus stated, I will come again. I will come again to take you personally to a place personally prepared by him for them. Verse 3 that was. And he added that he'd be with him, uh, they would be with him always. And then there was a plan. And the plan, how this would be done, would be through him. Through him, Jesus, and exclusively through him, Jesus stated that I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes unto the Father but by me. There is no other way. No other way. Acts 2.12 states this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that is given among men by which we must be saved. No other name only Jesus. So from these first six verses that we covered quite some time ago, we see that here Jesus cares for them. He cares. He prepares. He made a plan, and he's coming again. He's coming again. What a great promise. So what is the second promise Jesus gives to his disciples on this night before his death? Let's continue with John 14, verses 7 and on. I'll quickly go through the passage, highlighting the verses surrounding the second promise, and add a few from the following chapters. So let's look into John 14, verses 7 through 11 at first. Yes? Is that in a way? All right, I'll, I'll try this instead. Let me shut the other one off. Verse 7 of chapter 14. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe me because of the works themselves. You see what's going on here. You see what Jesus is trying to point out. Philip wanted to see the Father. He wanted to see God. He maybe expected a manifestation, some sort of glory or whatever. And Jesus is showing him and telling him something. Jesus is God. Jesus is not just a manifestation of God. He is God manifested. Let me repeat that. Jesus is not just a manifestation of God. He is God manifested. Verse 9 here says that he who has seen me has seen the Father. 
previous in chapter 12, verse 45, Jesus said, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. In John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. John, throughout his gospel, has this as a consistent theme, the deity of Jesus Christ. If the disciples at this, had, at this time fully understood who Jesus was, they would have known the Father also. Philip might not have asked that question. If the disciples at this time had fully understood who Jesus would, was, they would have known the Father also. And how can I say that? We understand this from what Jesus states in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Again, Jesus claiming full deity. In John 8, verse 19, Jesus stated to the Pharisees when he was in the treasury, If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So the conclusion to this is what? If you see me, you see the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. And as these verses tend to indicate, this fact was probably not fully understood by the disciples to probably after Jesus' death, his ascension, and probably the coming of the Holy Spirit that made all this stuff real to them. Verse 12 states this, Truly I say unto you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. We have recorded in, by Luke in the book of Acts that the disciples of Jesus were used by God to perform many mighty miracles in order to show basically their authenticity of the message of the gospel they were preaching. They did not do more powerful miracles than Jesus. I don't think they did more in number than Jesus did. And this is not what Jesus is referring here to. When he said greater works than these, Jesus is not referring to the amount and not the power of the acts, but basically to the extent of the spiritual work that would be accomplished. Now, Jesus, during his ministry, think about it, was what? His public ministry was probably only about three and a half years. In time and territory, his public ministry probably was located only in a geographical area in the region of Palestine. And mostly it was to the Jewish people. In contrast, think of what took place with the disciples and the apostles. The gospel there was much longer preached than three and a half years. I mean, Peter, the first time he spoke after the Holy Spirit came upon him, about 3,000 souls were saved. John was still ministering until his death in his ripe old age. The gospel message, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the messengers being sent, basically went out to reach the masses, to the far reaches of the Gentile world. These were the greater works. And Jesus gives the reason for this. He says, these greater works will be done, they would be done because, verse 12 says, because I go to the Father. Now this is an important point in time here. Because the second promise would not occur until Jesus is what? Returned to the Father. Verse 13 goes on to say, 
Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified, may glorified in the Son. Jesus, during his time on earth here, he supplied all the disciples' needs. Everything they needed, he was supplying as they went along. He even paid for Peter and his own temple tax, if you remember, when he told Peter to go get a fish, and out of the fish came the mouth. Out of the fish's mouth came the coinage needed to pay the temple tax. Jesus here reassures his disciples that though he would be no longer with them physically, that their needs would be met. Through prayer, Jesus would meet all their needs. He states in verse 13 that, that will I do. Jesus would still provide for them even though he's not physically with them. And the question is why? So that the Father, verse 13, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14 says, if, I, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we as Christians often, almost always, close our prayer how? In Jesus' name. But what does that mean? In Jesus' name. It's not a magical abracadabra phrase that if we use it, we get anything we want according to those three words if that was attached to the prayer. It's not. It really signifies, first of all, that our requests align with or are consistent with what Jesus would want or do. And that would be the Father's will. Just as Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. John, in his first letter, the first epistle that he wrote in John, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, John writes this, This is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him in Jesus' name. It accepts and it submits to the will of the Father. Secondly, when we pray in Jesus' name, it kind of shows our own lack of worthiness to approach God on our own merits. Only through the righteousness of Christ and what he did on the cross can we go before a holy God and even ask anything? But at that point, we can boldly go to the throne of grace reverently. Thirdly, when we pray in Jesus' name, it is to express our desire to have the Father glorified in the Son through our prayers. As I've repeated so many times so far, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It fits right in with the verse before. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we are keeping with the person and the, and the purpose and the preeminence of Jesus with what he wants, which is the Father's will to be done. Verse 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There is an inseparable link between love and and obedience. If you love someone, you'll want to please them, which is consistent with obedience. 
And again, John in his first letter emphasizes this again. 1 John 5, 3 states, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and that His commandments are not burdensome. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 16 states this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is a spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. To those who are faithful, who are love and obey, in other words, those who have been born again, he gives this promise, the promise of the helper. Now the word helper here comes from the Greek, parakletos, which basically means one who comes alongside, one who comes alongside to help. It's translated sometimes as being counselor, intercessor, exhorter, encourager. This is the helper. He's also referred to here as a spirit of uh, spirit of truth. Spirit of truth. And think back on what Jesus said earlier in verse 6 of this chapter. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The helper is the spirit of truth. Notice it also says another helper. Another, in this case, means one of the same kind. Jesus promised to send another helper just like him to take his place, to continue his work. Though Jesus would be leaving shortly, another helper would come. And verse 16 says that he may be with you forever. Notice in these verses the emphasis on the personal pronouns. It says he or him that he uh, may be with you forever. The world cannot receive him because it does not see him or know him. Recently, in uh, some segments of our society, these personal pronouns have become very offensive to people, mainly because they denote a gender, and some people like to refer themselves in whatever gender of the day they decide to be or however they see, or other people want to be referred this way. Prior to this, and still going on today, many cults and even professing Christians don't think of the Holy Spirit as being a person, as a he. They tend to think that he's a power or an impersonal force. The scripture clearly indicates that the Holy Spirit is not a power or force, that it is a he, he. He's a person, the third person of the Trinity, God of very God. And if you look at some of the attributes of the Holy Spirit in scriptures, it tells us, and let's take a look at some of them and make a decision for yourself. Is this a power or is this a person? The Holy Spirit is described as having intellect. He knows the thoughts of God. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. He has emotions. He can be grieved. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Holy Spirit has a will. He distributes spiritual gifts to the church according to his will. 1 Corinthians 12.11 states this, 
but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each individual just as he wills. We see that the Holy Spirit teaches. Luke 12, 12 states, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Holy Spirit testifies. Romans 8, 16 states, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit leads and directs. Mark 13, 11 states, When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit also convicts. John 16, 8 states, And he, meaning the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know, the Holy Spirit speaks. In Acts 8.29, the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. He intercedes. Romans 8.26, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He reveals. Luke 2.26, At the birth of Jesus, And it had been said, revealed to him, meaning Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. Matthew 12, 31 states, Blaspheme against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. He can be lied to. Acts 5, 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now all of these are attributes. They're not describing a force or a power. They're describing a person, a he, the third person of the, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Additionally, to this last text that I referred to, when Luke records in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, I'll read that and get into it, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have lied, not lied to men, but to God. And as, these, as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and a great fear came upon all that heard of it. Point is, Satan, quoting from these verses here, Satan filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and Peter states, you have not lied to men, but to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. Because the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Holy Trinity. Getting back to John chapter 14, verse 16. But you know him because he abides with you and will be with you. 
Now, the Holy Spirit was active throughout the Old Testament and New, but in a different way, basically, prior to Pentecost. He still saved. He sanctified. He empowered for service, holy men of God. He was with and upon many of the Old Testament saints, and he abided with his disciples as they walked with Jesus. But we see here a special promise that the Holy Spirit would be indwelling believers. The Holy Spirit will be in you. He will be personally and permanently indwelling believers. Romans 8, 9 states, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And this all occurred because Jesus went back to the Father. Now if we could skip down to, in the 14th chapter of John, down to verse 26, and look at some of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's stated within this chapter. In John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And we see the disciples, while walking with Jesus, had difficulty understanding everything that Jesus was teaching them. There were times when he was with the twelve that he had to stop and explain basically some of the parables to them. But after his departure, the Holy Spirit will be the one teaching and reminding them of the things that Jesus taught, that he said, and that were done. We see in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple, he says in verse, uh, verse 19 there, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it again. He said this speaking about his own body, this temple being his own body. It was not until after the resurrection that they understood what this meant. Verse 22 of that tells us, So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus spoke. Another example in John 12, verses 12 through 16, when Jesus was entering Jerusalem in a triumphal entry. Verse 12 on reads like this. On the next day, a large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, verse 16 of that chapter states this. These things the disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So it wasn't later, until Jesus was glorified, that they understand the significance of what took place at the triumphal entry. John 14, 26 says, The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit will teach you and bring things to your remembrance. Looking at the New Testament, and you take a look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, think of how much of the Gospels, the New Testament, are the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, remembered by the disciples and recorded for our benefit, 
It's a tremendous amount of scripture there. All through the power of the Holy Spirit who came. So the Holy Spirit teaches, he brings to the remembrance, and in John 15, 26, it tells us that the Holy Spirit also testifies about Christ. John 15, 26 says, When the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. This is the help and the empowerment in proclaiming the gospel and witnessing also. Verse 26 adds, and you will testify also. Mark 13, 11, which I read before. When I arrest you and I hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This is how we are to testify. The words will be given you by the Holy Spirit and you will speak. Has that ever happened to you? Has there been a time in your life when perhaps you were telling someone about Jesus and you're speaking and you're, you're, you're using words and your words of conviction and excitement are coming out and maybe scriptures are pouring out of your mouth as you're speaking and then all of a sudden, in the back of your mind, you say to yourself, where did that come from? <laughs> it's kind of a startling moment, but it's so real when the Holy Spirit is actually using you, and sometimes you don't even realize, because the Scripture, when it's ingrained with you and it starts coming out like that, the Holy Spirit will give you words in that hour to say. So the Holy Spirit teaches, he brings things to our remembrance. He testifies. He empowers. And he also convicts. He convicts. John 16, 8. And he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Notice the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The world. No one can be saved apart from the Spirit's convicting and regenerating work just can't be done. So here we see the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, teaches, empowers, convicts. And one more point that's mentioned in, this, in these couple of chapters. He's also not a glory seeker. He glorifies Jesus. He doesn't draw attention to himself. In John 16... Verses 13 through 14, Jesus states, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. This is just another of the ministries of the Holy Spirit glorify Jesus. Now this is not a complete list of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, but it is a few that are connected with these passages in the upper room discourse here, that Jesus gave the promise of the Holy Spirit in order to comfort his disciples just hours before his crucifixion. Now we've covered a lot here this morning, 
But we have to ask, how does this apply to us today? What can we take away from these promises and the surrounding texts? These passages clearly show, number one, that Jesus was concerned and he cared for his disciples and he cares for us. He knows what they were going through. He knows what we are going through. He knows our frailties. He knows all the trouble that we encounter each and every day of our lives. And he actually knows what lies ahead in our lives well before we even encounter it. He's promised to supply all of our needs, both physically and spiritually. So keep on believing and trusting. He's given us comfort by the promise of his return. I will come again, he said. An eternal future home with him has been prepared. But again, we must keep our hearts and our minds on the eternal and not on the temporal things that surround us in this world. And while we watch and while we wait for his return, he has given us the promised helper, a comforter, a teacher, the Holy Spirit, one who will guide us into all truth, one who will teach, bring to our remembrance, empower us to testify in order that we can face days in and out. We are to just remember these two promises. And let not your heart be troubled. Let's pray. Fathers, we ask that you help us to keep these precious promises, Father, in, in mind. Lord, throughout our days and in order to help us through our troubled times, help us to watch and wait for our Savior's return. Help us to yield to the Holy Spirit of promise to find comfort and peace in these troubled times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.